You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. I want to begin today by reading uh, the parable of the prodigal son, which of course is a parable we are all familiar with. Um, but I want to read it from the First Nations version, which is the Native American translation of the New Testament that I read out of last week. And I think this is going to become like the official version I read out of on Sunday mornings here when I do read a passage. Jen, you're smiling because this was your idea. Well, I don't think it was just your idea. I think as I fix my rug here, uh, I think it was you said this is something All Saints has done, right? This is their official version. So I'm stealing their idea, I guess. But I thought it was a good idea. So I'm not saying to Max or anybody else, you have to only read out of the new, the First Nations version. But I think I'm going to. Um, I think it's really, I think it's great. Um, and so uh, I'm going to read a passage, the, the story of the prodigal son from it out of Luke chapter 11 and in the First Nations version, which, by the way, I, I just want to say this version was put together by a cadre of Native American, Christian Native American Bible scholars and Christian Native American organizations. So this is not in any way kind of like half-baked or done off the cuff. This was this is a serious translation that honors the language, the worldview, the values of the Christian Native American community, which I think is quite uh, quite wonderful. And again, this is the First Nations version is available online. You can buy it on Kindle for, I, I think I got it for like 10 bucks. And it's only the New Testament. They've just translated the New Testament. All right. So here is the story of the prodigal son from Luke's gospel, or what the First Nations version calls shining light tells the good story. That's Luke's gospel in the First Nations version. All right. Here's the story. There was a man with two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me now my share of what is coming to me. This was a great insult to the father, for this would not have been done until the father had crossed over to death. But the father, who was good-hearted and loved his sons, divided all that he had uh, with his sons anyway. Not many days later, the younger son took his share and went far away to another land. He began to spend it all on wild living and soon had nothing. The time came when there was not enough food in the land for everyone, and he found himself poor and hungry. So he went to work for a rancher who sent him out to feed the pigs. He became so hungry that he wanted to eat the husks he was feeding to the pigs, but no one would even give him a meal. Soon the younger son came back to his right mind and said to himself, Look, here I am naked and starving, but the servants who work for my father are well fed. I am going to humble myself to my father. I will tell him that I have dishonored him and the spirit world above, and I am no longer worthy to be called his son. I will ask him just to let me be a hired servant who works in his fields. He then made up his mind and began to go home. While he was still far away, his father saw him walking. The father's heart opened, opened wide, 
and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and gave him a kiss. The son said, Father, I have failed the spirit world above and you. I am not worthy to be called your son. But the father ignored his son's words, turned to his servants and said, go, find my best regalia and put it on him. Give him a headdress of feathers for his head and new moccasins for his feet. Go get the fattest calf and prepare a great feast for celebration. This is my son. He was lost, but I have found him. He was dead to me, but now he is alive. Then they all began to feast, sing, and dance. Now the older son, who was just returning from a hard day's work in the field, he heard the music and dancing, so he asked one of his servants what was going on. The servant told him, your brother has come home, and your father has prepared a great feast for him because he is alive and well. Hearing this, the older brother became very angry and refused to go into the lodge. The father saw him brooding outside, so he went to him and urged him to come in at once. The older, the older son said to his father, why can you not see? I worked hard for you all my life and done all that you have asked of me, but you have not even given me one small goat to have a feast with my friends. But when this son of yours, who wasted all that you gave him on sexual favors with women, comes home, you kill the fattest calf for him. The father looked kindly into his older son's face. My son, he said to him, you are always close to my heart and everything that I have is yours. But it is a good thing for us to celebrate with glad hearts for your brother was dead, but now is alive. He was lost, but we have found him. The word of the Lord. I think what makes this parable so profound isn't really that the father forgave his son, which is a wonderful part of the story, don't get me wrong. But for me, what makes this parable as profound as it is, is that it reveals that the prodigal son was never estranged from his father at least not as far as his father was concerned, which is to say that he was never actually outside his father's love. Even when he was far away in a foreign land, doing God's no, God knows what, the son was never actually outside his father's love. And this is revealed at the end of the story, right? When even, even when the son is still far away off, coming down the road, the father sees him. And he runs out to meet him. Even before the son repented, the father runs out to meet him, throws his arms around him and kisses him. Again, even before he repented, thus revealing that the separation between him and his father was only a figment of the son's imagination, a false story. It was a false story that he had convinced himself was true which was shattered immediately upon his return home. All of this, of course, I think, is meant to symbolize God's unconditional love for us, right? And our unbreakable connection to God, the absolute, the Father, the source, the divine, whatever you want to call it. If you don't like a certain metaphor, that's okay. Change the metaphor. In this way, this parable functions as a critique. I think it functions as a critique 
of the common story found in many religions, particularly Christianity, this idea that we are strange and we are disconnected from God, the one. And therefore, we must go on a quest. We've got to go on this quest to find the path back home, the path back to God. We have to find, we're told, the right religion, the right beliefs, the right church, the right pastor, or the right spiritual practices, the right guru, the right yoga studio, the right philosophy, the right book, whatever. We got to find the right, whatever that thing is, in order to reconnect with God, the absolute, ultimate reality, the one, the source, whatever you want to call it. And don't get me wrong, lots of spiritual paths are great and they can be helpful, but only if, only if they help us realize that we've never been separated from God. We've never been separated from God or ultimate reality in the first place. Our connection is always right here within us. If we just silence our minds and still our hearts for just a minute, if we can do that, I'm not saying right now, but in general, if you can silence your mind and still your heart for even just a moment, I think we can sense that deeper connection. We can find a kind of inner peace and serenity, which is our true underlying state of being, I believe. I think we're all like deep oceans. On the surface, there may be a hurricane blowing, like Hurricane Ian, and the waves are crashing. But beneath the surface, even then, the ocean in its depths is always still and silent, regardless of what's going on on the surface. In other words, everyday life is often full of stress and anxiety, right? Everyday life is full of troubles that toss us to and fro. But we can always turn inwards and find that inner silence and stillness and in that way realize or rediscover our true connection to the absolute, the divine, the ground of being, God whatever you want to call it. But again, it's not reconnecting so much as it is realizing that we've always been connected and our true state of being is that connection. You can never not be connected. To be alive, to be here, to be now, to be conscious, to be human is to be connected to that greater reality. You can never not be connected. Meditation can help us with understanding that. Focusing on your breathing can help, can help with that. Uh, being aware that our anxious minds are constantly spitting out stories that are not true. I don't know if that's true. I, I know it's true for me. My mind is constantly catastrophizing. <laughs> you know, with every moment of stress, our minds are constantly cranking out stories that frankly have no bearing on reality or the future. Time and time again, I have to remind myself, I worry, I constantly am worrying, but nothing, even when something terrible happens, never as bad or as I thought or situation changes. Understanding that can, can help us find that inner sanctum of peace and serenity and sense of connection. Hearing talks like this one, coming to spaces like this once a week can help with that. 
All of these are some techniques that can help us rediscover that sense of connection with the ground of being, the absolute God. You know, like many of you, I've spent a long time spiritually seeking. I've been on a quest. That's what a lot of us share in common in this church of post-evangelicals, um, deconstructed <laughs> Christians. We're on a, we've been on a quest. We've been in exile, traveling in a desolate place, in desert wildernesses like the Israelites, right? I've spent years spiritually seeking deconstructing and reconstructing, going from fundamentalism to progressive and liberal Christianity to radical Christianity and radical theology. I've gone from theism to a kind of post-theism to, to pantheism, to blurring the boundaries between atheism and theism. And yet all this spiritual seeking for enlightenment and truth has led me to a place where I have realized that in a way there was really nowhere to go. It's like that famous T.S. Eliot quote, at the end of all our exploring, we'll arrive back where we started and know the place for the first time. At the end of all our exploring, we'll arrive back at where we began and know the place for the first time. There's something true about that in my experience here. In a sense, the, the spiritual journey itself is necessary to realize that. This is something you can only know through experience. The journey is still necessary if only to help us realize that the destination was never somewhere out there in a church, in a yoga studio, in this book or that book, in this philosophy or that philosophy. But the destination was always right here, in here, with that deep knowledge that we are already and always have been connected to God, ultimate reality, the one, the source, ultimate meaning, however you want to put it. And don't get me wrong. Don't, don't mishear me this morning. I still believe, <laughs> I still find a lot of value in exploring theology and philosophy and religion. But the most important thing I've learned is that everything we're looking for is really right here and at our fingertips. It's found right here in our capacity to love, to love ourselves, to love the other, and to love life itself as it really is. And all of its joys and sorrows, all of its triumphs and failures, our capacity to love and embrace ourselves, others, and life is all that this is really about. Which is to say that God, the divine, the absolute, the ground of being, and us are not separate things, but one thing. And I know to some, maybe not in this room <laughs> or listening online, but I know to some that sounds like pure New Age nonsense, right? Or even atheistic to say that God and us are one, and, right? And, but such a claim is actually quite orthodox and quite old. I'm talking about, you know, this is, the mystics have always been saying this. And I'm talking about Christian mystics like Meister Eckhart from the 14th century, who said, the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. 
My eye and God's eye are one eye and one sight and one knowledge and one love. Hear that again. The eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one sight, one knowledge, and one love. Meister Eckhart, 14th century. Or consider the words of Athanasius, the Eastern church father from the 4th century. He put it even simpler than that. He said, God became man so that man might become God, period. God became human so that humanity might become God. He's, of course, speaking of the incarnation of God into the person of Jesus of Nazareth, which for him and many others signified not just Jesus's divinity or Jesus's sonship or Jesus's connection with God, but all, all of ours. For we too are the sons and daughters of God, our scriptures say. We too are the body of God, the body of Christ, as our scriptures say. We too are the temples of the Holy Spirit, as our scriptures say. We and God are one. You and God are one. You could never not be. This is your true homecoming, as it were. This is the end of the story of the prodigal son. Realizing in a way you never left home. It was all just a dream, your travels. We and God are one. And to some, this always has sounded like heresy. But it's actually orthodoxy and a traditional Christian idea that pops up in a lot of, a lot of different religions. For this, for this reason, this idea that I'm talking about this morning is, has a name. It's called the perennial philosophy. Anybody ever hear of perennial philosophy before? Good, you'll learn something new this morning. Perennial means constantly reoccurring, like, the, like perennial plants or perennial flowers. They're always coming back. You can't get rid of them. <laughs> perennial philosophy is this idea found in many religions and spiritual traditions across time that say everything in existence emanates from this ultimate metaphysical reality that goes by many different names. I've listed some here this morning. But this metaphysical reality is the source of all life and being. And just as everything emanated from it, everything will ultimately pass back into it, return to it. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Everything, therefore, is ultimately connected and could never not be. Everything is connected to the one, the source, the absolute, the ground of being, God everything, and could never not be. Again, this is known as perennial philosophy, and it's a timeless and universal idea spanning countless cultures and epochs, perhaps because we humans are intuitively aware of this underlying reality. I suspect this is the case. The reason why this idea is ubiquitous is because I think there's something about being conscious and alive makes us intuitively aware of our connection to this transcendental ultimate reality. We are living, thinking, and feeling forms of space, time, and matter. Think about that for a moment. We are living, thinking, and feeling forms of space, time, and matter. 
we are intuitively aware, therefore, perhaps, that space, time, and matter are not just mindless and passive stuff, but rather immersed or endowed or saturated with mind and awareness itself. Thus, since we are small manifestations of this larger metaphysical reality, we intuitively sense it, and our religions and our spiritual traditions are simply ways and attempts at expressing this, this truth, this experience, this event. Ways of expressing it, our religions and spiritual traditions are ways of paying homage to it, paying homage to the ineffable, to this great mystery, which we intuitively are aware of in the fabric of our being, how could we not be? This is at least the theory behind perennial philosophy, and I find it quite compelling. But all of this is to say that we are connected and could never be disconnected from the absolute, the divine, the source, the ground of being, God, whatever you wanna call it. We each, like the prodigal son, must realize that we've never been separated from the Father's love, and we could never be separated from the Father's love. Any sense of separation or alienation has always been an illusion. It's been a lie. It's a lie that we've told ourselves about ourselves, and it's a lie that we can give up and refuse to believe in. Realizing this, understanding this, accepting this, is all there's ever been to do. And I want to finish today and open it up for conversation by briefly mentioning the insights of Paul Tillich, who was a very prominent Christian philosopher and theologian of the 20th century. He taught at Union Seminary in New York and the University of Chicago and passed away in 1965. But he loved this passage from Matthew 7 where Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Tillich took this to mean that the passionate search, the passionate search for things like God, ultimate reality, the absolute, the passionate search for things like this, is the evidence that we've already found them, that they're right here already within us. Asking is receiving, in other words. Seeking is finding. There is no difference. The quest for ultimate truth is itself ultimate truth. The fact that you feel called into that, to the pull of it, the desire for it, the passionate search for it, the love of it, the desire for it, is the proof, the evidence. Do you already have it? it? It is that itself. The, the quest for meaning is itself meaningful. And all the meaning there is, arguably, the quest for ultimate truth is itself ultimate truth. In other words, the love of these things, the desire for them is itself the experience of them and our deepest connection to it. The point, once again, is that we are already connected to that which we seek. You could never not be connected. Turn inwards for just a moment. 
silence your mind, silence your heart, and you will know it, I believe. We could never not be connected to the Father. Understanding this and accepting this is all there ever was to do. This is our true homecoming, as it were. And this morning, as we receive the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you to meditate on this theme of your connection to God, however you understand God, because that's what this sacrament is really meant to remind us of. Jesus says, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. This is your connection to me, he was saying. By receiving this, we are, we are saying, we, we are proclaiming, we are hoping in that connection. We are ruminating on it, meditating on it. Let us do that. Let us believe that that's what this means for each of us, that you and I are connected to God and to each other. Let's meditate on that now as we, as we receive the Lord's Supper. And as always, for those of you who are new here, you come forward, you take one of these cups of just grape juice and one of the gluten-free crackers and you go back to your seat and you take it when you're ready as Max leads us in song. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Thanks, Max. So questions, comments, remarks, what stood out to you today? What moved you? What bothered you? <laughs> Anything goes. Max, could I um, get that mic for me in a second? Um, yeah, Randy, okay. Um, the thing that came to me when you were talking about looking within was when Jesus told them, the disciples, I think, the kingdom of heaven is within you. He said, don't look here or there. That kind of brought that up to me. That always confused me. You know, at that, when we first read that in church, you know, we always think of the kingdom being out there. He says, when the kingdom is within you, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. He said, the kingdom is among you too, right? This idea is at hand. Um, you know, uh, there's this kind of radical imminence in Jesus's, not just in the idea of the incarnation, God becoming human, you know, God leaving heaven behind and taking up his residence with us. But there's this deeper idea in Jesus's teachings, aka the gospel, that, you know, all of div all of, you know, divine presence, what we would say, the, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is here among us, within us in the ways I think Jesus was talking about in our love for each other, the way that we live together in right relationship to each other so God is present with us. And we can go a mystical direction with that too. And I, I find that to be, you know, deeper in the sense of, you know, this, this life, this experience of being alive, feeling and thinking, all of that is endowed with a kind of deeper mystery 
in a sense, I think of deep connection to something bigger than ourselves. And for me, that too is the kingdom. It's not just about a way of living in right relationship to each other, but it's about this experience of the divine here and now that permeates the fabric of our lives, that makes us a firm life in its depths, it gives us that love for life, love for others, but the love for life in this world as well. And there's a lot of beauty there. But again, that's, you're hitting on, I think, Randy, really the deepest message in the gospel that, you know, even in the Lord's prayer, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Heaven's not out there. Heaven's supposed to be here. God is here and now, not somewhere beyond. It's not about transcendence, but imminence. The so-called transcendent is imminent. That for me is like one of the most important not Christian ideas that you know we can dig into and uncover. But yeah, you're, thank you for mentioning that. I think there's a lot there. Now, other thoughts, remarks, questions. Yeah, I'd love to hear also, if possible, um, how you. What are the spiritual practices that work for you that give you that sense of connection to God? however you describe God, however you experience God, whatever spiritual practices you might have. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Randy. You got the mic. Um, meditation. Recently, I've been like meditating every day. Um, there's an app that has sound meditation. So you focus on breathing, but there's also this sound bath that you focus on these different, you know, kind of goes around your brain. And it's like focusing on the breathing, but on sound music and bells and drums and things. So that's helped me a lot, just sitting for 10 minutes and being really quiet and just listening to this music and connecting to God with higher power through the music. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Leanne and then Sarah. Yeah, I've also found meditation so helpful as well. Um, but this discussion about the oneness of being, um, really made me think of this quote from Tolkien's The Silmarillion. Um, so just give a brief little, uh, so in The Silmarillion, um, the one is named Eru, and kind of the big bad is Melchior. So those of you who have seen Lord of the Rings, Sauron is like Melchior's servant. So give you a taste. So the quote is, and thou, Melchior, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. And yeah, that just always was very moving for me. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Would you pass the mic to Sarah? And hey, congratulations, you two. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is kind of going backwards a bit, but um, that was a beautiful quote, by the way. But just talking about how I connect to God, I spend a lot of my time, and I'm freelance as an actor, so you know I I can afford to do that. I want to recognize that, but I spend a lot of my time doing Kundalini, meditation, yoga, dancing, um, exercise, basking in the sun, just trying to connect to God. I mean, I, I consider it almost like a, a part-time job because my monkey mind is strong. Like you were talking about your, you know, the, the thoughts that just come into your brain. Mine, mine are really powerful. So I have to spend 
a lot of time reminding myself of my connection to God um, and coming to church. And so I just wanted to say thank you for this space because that this is another way. Um, this is another one of my technologies that I use to to connect to God. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Ashley. So I've never liked this parable. I know I'm like the only person in the world who hates Please this Please tell us why, though. You can't just leave it there. Because it's like so, it, it makes, there's a reason why, okay, obviously this is not a true story. But when people run away from their families, there's a reason for that. Yeah. So there's a reason why he left. And it just feels like the parable is constantly used to manipulate, use compassion to manipulate people into coming back and conforming and yeah i could go on and on but it it, it makes me sick just thinking about this parable but um in Fair seminary enough. and i just want to say absolutely yeah. it's a parable it can be read like a different way yeah we that can, certainly ways that it has been read yeah. yeah we should deconstruct how evangelicals use compassion a little bit a um, amen yeah um but in seminary i had to preach on this parable and I had to do like a breakdown word for word, the things in the text. And if you really look closely at the text, all Jesus said was he wasted his inheritance on wasteful living. He didn't say anything about prostitutes. The brother did. He didn't say anything about X, Y, and Z. The brother implied that. And so when you look at this parable within the context of the larger conversation, the, the religious leaders were like, why is he eating with these people? Why is he eating with these tax, these sinners. And Jesus tells these parables about people who are lost. And in my opinion, in my understanding of it, it's the brother, the older brother that's lost, you know? Um, so, yeah, I just, I just feel like um, we are often very lost in our relationships because we cannot, we are so judgmental and we were taught to be judgmental by the evangelical church to criticize people who are quote unquote lost, who are wasting their lives. And it's like, who are you to judge what someone is doing with their life? And who are you to judge if they're lost or not? You know, um, like the song that he sang this morning, Max was like, you know, nothing is a waste. And I really believe that. I mean, I think redemption is all about that. Like nothing is wasted. So, okay. Yeah, thanks. I've, I've heard a uh, another good rendition of that parable that, you know, the idea of the son returning home is like, you know, returning home to like, he can't escape the father, which is kind of like a sad story in a way. He, he went out on his own. He was, he was, you know, figuring life on his own, but he got sucked back into that relationship. You know, there's different ways of reading that. Yeah. It's interesting. Sorry, Desiree, you got the mic. Oh, okay. You just, she just handed it to you. All right, cool. Very cool. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts, remarks, what, whatever, anything, any of this brings up for you, good or bad. We all, we want to hear it. Yeah, Emily. Thanks, Desiree. I always don't want to say something. I always have something to say. Um, <laughs> no, I was just going to say like that's another manipulation uh, of control where they go, oh, you're lost because you're out here doing something, but <clears throat> they might not understand that that is a part of that person's journey to figure out for themselves where they are or where their heart is or where, you know what I mean? And it's like, no one should, 
it's it brings up the whole like if you're if something's wrong in your life you're not being blessed you know and then it's like oh and then that's another way of like going hey you know well you're obviously doing something wrong and it's clearly because you've gone out and strayed from you know but it's just another way of manipulation and control that the radicals have done to make us feel like we're doing something wrong by trying to figure something out i mean half like you probably like didn't feel great about your life you know being in that one trajectory because you always felt like you were doing something wrong or the guilt or the shame of thoughts or whatever and it's like to me that's not how it should be it should be we should be comfortable where we are and if we had to go out to come back whatever that going out and come back looks like is what it was you know how many of you feel or worry sometimes like a sudden like rush of terror? Like, oh my God, am I going to hell? Like anybody ever still feel that way? Yes, thank you. I'm not the only one where sometimes, even after all these years, that programming, that hardwired programming is still there. And I laugh at myself because they're like ghosts that haunt me up here, if you will. But I mean, like, that's crazy, right? Like I'm still worried sometimes. Like maybe I'm actually, maybe I'm really wrong and I'm going to hell. I know we laugh, but it's like, and I laugh at myself, but it's also profoundly sad that this is, you know, these are our scars. And to be honest, I'm going to be like a 90 year old man. If I live that long, hopefully I will, but I'll be like a nine year old man worrying, like, is God going to torture, torment me for all of eternity for getting my theology wrong? You know, that's always going to be a thought in the back of my head. And uh, you just triggered me. No, I'm, I'm saying that you just, uh, but what you're saying is right. I mean, we were, we were fed that line that you are lost. I mean, and now you must be found, right? You have to come back to the Lord. You know, we sang it. So it's an almost all the hymns, you know, like amazing grace. I was lost, but now I'm found. And not to say that there's not something redemptive and wonderful about that theme. Sometimes I don't want to just say that that's a terrible theme. It's not a terrible theme, but it was used to manipulate us and to convince us that we are unloved by the father. We are outside, you know, this connection with, you know, whatever you want to call it, right. That you are somehow depraved and lacking and shit and you need to get right. Which means of course, doing what the church tells you, right. Jumping through all those nonsensical hoops and abuse, you know, um, enough said. <laughs> yeah. Well, go ahead. Like, before I was going to marry Diana, I was like, we had been together for eight or seven and a half years or something. And I was obviously, she's my person, but, and I was fine with it without the marriage thing, because that sort of seals the deal. And then you're like, whoa, I'm definitely going to hell if I marry her and have children. That's definitely going to be a thing. So I had to go on my own journey to like figure out the whole gay thing and the, you know, being married to a woman and a I really took a year and a half and just started reading things. And what I found was, is I felt further away when I believed that I felt further away from God when I believed that I was going to hell. And when I started like reading about it and understanding people's um, breakdown of the scriptures and, you know, the things that they don't teach you, I started feeling closer to God. And I thought, well, this is exact, like that made so much sense to me. You're saying deconstruction <clears throat> made you feel closer to God. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Enough said. It's good. Anybody else? Yes. I don't know your name. Hello. Jenna, nice meeting you. Welcome. 
Hi, I'm one of Sarah's friends. I'm visiting. Um, but it's it's really interesting to me because I used to be the like terror in the middle of the night. I'm going to hell, blah, blah, blah. And I talked to my dad about it. And he said that hell isn't a place where you're tortured for eternity. It's just separation from God. And I like take so much solace in that because it, it's so clear to me that like when I, you know, for instance, I do this thing called the miracle morning. It's, you know, a couple of things that you do in the morning just to like set up your day. And on the days when I don't do it, when I don't have prayer to start my day, the day is just a little bit, not as good as when I do get up and I pray and I meditate and I write and I read, um, uh, and move. And so, so it's just like that to me is, is this living example of what my dad was talking about of like, you can have hell on earth. You can have heaven on earth because it's always here. It's just a matter of whether you are consciously connecting to the divinity within or not, you know, and that I, I experience that on like a daily basis based on how I just start my day. So. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I think a lot of us here really, really resonate with that truth. Yeah. Anybody else this morning? Okie doke. Well, let us close our time together, our, I guess, our formal time together with our benediction. And let's read this together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks for being here.